Turn with me to Revelation 14. This morning is Sunday morning. It is October 10th, 2010. 10, 10, 10. My goodness. Number of man, number of man's government, number of man's government. 10, 10, 10. 10 fingers, 10 toes. It's all about man. This morning we're going to talk all about Jesus. So uh, tell me when you're in Revelation 14. Well, I wish it took you longer because I'm not there. I'm working on it. Revelation 14. We're going to start in the first verse. Our message this morning on October 10th is evildoer or co-laborer. You would think that that would be such an easy thing to determine. Evildoer or co-laborer. Right? Y'all got that message? Some of you are scribbling. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion. Friends, Mount Zion is in a physical location. You can go there today, you can stand on it, you can sing praises upon it, and it is in Israel. <laughs> then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. The function, the authority, the character, the reputation, the Ha-Shem of Yeshua was upon their foreheads. And of Yahweh was upon their foreheads. In other words, they had a full revelation of who God is and His expression through Yeshua. They understood that. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of a harpist playing their harps. Uh, maybe not a modern day harpist. You have to think ancient times. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the living four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They were blameless. I wanted to talk to you about this passage before we move on. 12,000 men from the 12 tribes of Israel. We have multiples of 12 and multiples of 10 throughout this. God instituted among the governments of men. He instituted His government. It always works in multiples of 12. There's 12 tribes. There's a 12-fold government of God on the planet. And it begins in Israel. And from each of the tribes of Israel, He took a representative 12,000 men. This is like multiplying God's government through mankind. It's a special representative force that He wants to do something with, and He calls it the first fruits of a last and great harvest that happens on the planet. For your purposes this morning, I don't care whether or not you understand the numbers. Even Israel's significance this morning should fade into the background of the significance of this for you. They were purchased. They were not defiled. They had no lie in their mouths. And most importantly, they followed the Lamb wherever He went. 
Friends, I am familiar with many believers that have been purchased and understand that they're purchased. When we begin speaking of being free of defilement, some say, oh, no, 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 I'm sexually pure. Okay, but is there a lie in your mouth? You might be one, you might be the other. I'm asking, though, purchased from the Lamb, do you do whatever He says to do? Are you free from the contaminants of self-will in your life? Self-determination. <laughs> self, self, self. Do you follow Him wherever He goes? Or do you only follow Him when it suits you to follow Him? See, Christians are very good at following the Lord into blessing. <coughs> They're not very good at following the Lord into sacrifice. The men that God will use in the great harvest that comes upon the whole world and yields fruit from every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth are men who will follow Him wherever He goes, regardless of the cost, because they have kept themselves pure in His presence, understanding their purchase. There's a message right there in that, but we won't stop there. Pick up with me in the 12th verse. Actually... We're going to pick up in the 13th verse, but I want to tell you what happens between them. Between them, an angel goes out with a message. And the message is for every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. In Hebrew, one of the ways that you might say this is every family of nations. It is the promise that was given to Abraham that all nations, all families of nations, would be blessed throughout the earth. This is the fulfillment of that promise. It is coming through the seed of Abraham. And here was the message that the angel gave that he calls the eternal gospel of God. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The message at the very end for mankind is much the same as the message from the very beginning. There is one eternal God who is calling you to absolute, total obedience. No area left unsurrendered. How many of you, when asked what the gospel is, would begin with a lengthy explanation that involved blood sacrifice, that involved uh, lots of theological words? The book of Revelation sums up the gospel as your total obedience to the creator of everything. That is the good news that there is a way back into lordship with God as your Lord by way of Yeshua. Pick up with me then in the 12th verse. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments. Who are the saints? Those who obey Him. Come on, saints, you can talk. Who are the saints? Those who obey God's commandments. Who are the saints? Those who obey God's commandments. Wow, how divorced is that from our theology? Most people would say the saints are those who believe. They're those who confess. So the saints are those who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Yeshua. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I want to tell you this morning, saints, that there is a day coming when your deeds will follow you. There is a harvest that is coming upon the earth 
that starts from the heavens and moves right on down. It is of divine origin. And only those who have been kept free from defilement, those who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, those are the men that will be used. And those that die during that time period will rest from their labor because it is hard work advancing the kingdom. But their deeds will live on through eternity. Come on, one of the great lines from a movie in my day was, uh, your deeds will echo in eternity. I don't even have to tell you what the movie is. Many of you are already nodding your heads. This is a thief, thievery. The scriptwriter steals this right out of the Bible. Steals it out of the Bible because the things that you do today are supposed to echo through eternity. What kind of message is it sending? This morning as I talk to you about evildoers or co-laborers, I want to first define for you what co-laborers are from this passage. Look at verse 14. I looked and there before me was a white cloud. By the way, do you have a title above verse 14? Harvest in the earth. How many churches are named harvest time? Great harvest, world harvest, king's harvest. How many other harvests there are? We can name a church harvest. We can put pictures of the wheat field out there. We can call ourselves fishers of men. You can call yourself a professional athlete, but if you don't pry your butt off of the couch, are you? There is a harvest going on. We need to open our eyes to the harvest that is around us. As I walked through a neighborhood and saw men sitting out on the street corner with little to do, I realized this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity. How many opportunities are we passing daily? When you are purchased of the Lamb, you go wherever He says to go. When you're free from defilement, you don't worry about other people's dirtiness getting upon you. They have to worry about your righteousness getting on them. Come on, Christians. You should be the people the devil's mama warned him about. You should be there to take his ball and take it to your home. You should be there to take his lunch money from him. You are supposed to be the most powerful force upon the planet. You are the light on the hilltop, not the flashlight in the drawer. Come on now. Flashlight in the drawer or light on the hilltop. Our deeds will echo through eternity. How do they echo? They echo in each other's lives. Matt, Suzanne, their faithfulness and prayer for me will echo for eternity. Because the fruit of their prayer was my salvation. It echoes for eternity. What are your deeds echoing? I looked and there before me was a white cloud. And seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. With a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he was seated on the cloud. He who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Friends, whose hand are you supposed to be in? Whose body are you a part of? When Jesus wants to harvest the earth, who will he use to do it? It's not only in Indonesia. It's not only in India. It's not only in Sri Lanka that our God is moving. He wants a harvest from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every family of nations on the earth. And it begins with what you do. 
In looking at his description, you can find out what you should be. You find out how it is done. Let us start with where is he seated. You can tell me where is he seated? On a cloud. Friends, when we are seated on the white cloud, Exodus 13, 21 says that the cloud of his presence was there at night. It was there at day. They followed it wherever it went. In 1 Kings 8, we find that cloud fills the temple with the presence of God. In fact, cloud is synonymous with God's presence throughout the word. Where is Jesus seated? He's seated on a cloud. You want to participate in the harvest of God, you must be seated in the right place. The Bible declares that you are seated with Him in heavenly realms. Where is He seated? On the presence of God. Where are you seated? The lazy boy or the royal throne of God's presence? Do you follow Him wherever He goes? Or do you have to be pushed and driven and punished and disciplined just to get small amounts of obedience from Him? Obedience is never tested when you want to do what you're told to do. We can pull little Josiah from the back in here and tell him to eat M&M's all day long and he will probably eat M&M's all day long. You pull little Eric in here at the same age and tell him to eat Oprah and it will not happen without a fist fight. We must learn to be seated on the presence of God. I taught on this not long ago and it was the Merkava, the chariot throne of God. There's nothing ever in its rearview mirror. Wherever he is facing, is facing forward. Yeshua is seated on the very presence of God. And so we must be seated on the very presence of God. The reason Jesus is seen coming on the clouds of heaven is because it is literally riding on the presence of God that he returns. So, well, Jesus is God. Yes, the way that he is God is he is so full of his deity, so enveloped in his deity that anywhere he is, the deity of God is. Are you supposed to be any different? Your righteousness came through his work, but now that he's credited it to you, shouldn't you be so associated with God's presence that wherever you are, God's presence is? Or do we call you God's temple for no reason? If you are God's temple and God is in you, is he not wherever you are? Well, it should be that way, should it? Come on, saints. We must learn to ride on his presence. Brother Steve, Elder Steve, calls this surfing with Jesus. I go where he says to go. I do what he says to do. I flow in his spirit. The book of Galatians calls it staying in step with the Spirit. All you drummers out there should appreciate that. It means staying in harmony on beat. No off clapping with Him. <laughs> what was next? says that He was wearing a gold crown. This speaks of divine authority. When you are seated in God's presence, directed by Him, following Him wherever He says to go, there is a divine sense of of authority in you. I shared stories with this pastor the other day and one of his favorites was a time in which he was in a place where there were spiritists and mediums. And one of them looked at him and said, oh no, it's you. And ran away. Because in the spirit he could see who this pastor really was. Amen. Friends, that's something to rejoice over. You know what would be more mighty than that? If you knew who you were. Right. Sons of God, right? Amen. Another elder in the church, Abel Torres, teaches about Son of God all of the time. 
Let me ask you something, though. The golden crown that Jesus wore. Was it the first crown he ever wore? Mm. Do you know how you begin to get the revelation that you have the authority of God in your life? That you have golden, divine, king-like authority? Yeah. You have to wear the crown of thorns. You have to know what it is to lay your will aside so that what you're feeling flow through you is truly divine authority. And it is not a contaminated mixture of corrupt stew of flesh and divinity. Jesus wore a crown of thorns. Matthew 27 teaches it. In fact, all four Gospels mention it. And what kind of thorns? Twisted thorns. Speaks of wickedness. Like wicker furniture, Brad taught me many years ago. Wicker twisted together to make something. Wickedness twists sin into something that Jesus willingly wore. You cannot wear divine authority until your flesh, your reputation... <coughs> Your self-governance has been completely defeated because you've died to sin. The reason we don't walk in the knowledge of who we are in Christ is because we haven't walked the path of sacrifice. We've tried to merely walk the path of blessing. Come on now, am I preaching to anybody here? Yes. Well, where do we find sacrifice? It's easy. You follow the Lamb. He will always lead you. He'll tell you things like equality with God is not something to be grasped. Take the nature of a servant. Not just any servant, but a regular old lowly human servant. Submit even to the point of dying, even if it is death on a nasty Roman crucifixion stake. And then our God will put upon you a crown of glory. And when your name is spoken, demons will <coughs> Come on, saints. You cannot get to glory if your path does not lead through sin. Come on, are you tracking with me here today? Yes. He's riding on a cloud. He's wearing a golden crown. A golden crown because he first wore the crown of sacrifice. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 4. There. There. Second <coughs> Timothy four. I want you to hear about a brother that we love very much. A man who received a revelation of God. But his revelation of God, his love for God, was no more accessible than revelation of love for God is for you. The Bible that he carried around actually had a fewer number of books than yours because he's been adding to it for you. You have more access to everything that God taught him than he had because you've had it your whole life and he didn't get it until he was late in life. You have every bit as much opportunity as he ever had. And yet we put him in some other category of human being because it excuses us from having to ride on the cloud and wear the golden crown. And listen to what he says. 
For I am already being poured out. This is verse 6. I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. When you have been poured out, God pours righteousness in. When you are empty, our God will fill you. You need to know who you are in Christ and it comes one way. Losing your identity in Him. If you don't know what it is to be spit on for Jesus, if you don't know what it is to have people revile you or persecute you, friends, you don't know what it is to be blessed yet. <clears throat> because Jesus Himself said, Blessed are you when men revile and persecute you. If you go wherever He goes, if you do whatever He does, they will do to you what they did to Him. And this is not a bad thing. It's not a scary thing. Because you end up with a crown of righteousness. You want to participate in the worldwide harvest of God? The first thing we have to do is throw away the ridiculous schemes of men. They have turned the church of the living God into a house that reaps finances. Into fishers of funds. They have changed the harvest of God into a wicked flesh expose. Each man lifted higher than the other. Men applauded for their talents. The king of kings had no such things to draw men to him. And he did pretty good during his three years of ministry, don't you think? Yeah. We have lifted up self-effort to the point that that is all you see in ministry. Nobody takes a Sabbath. Nobody lays aside self-effort and leaves room for God and God alone to do it. We must return to riding on a cloud with the king. We must return to an identity that is born of heaven and a crown that we wear on our head that we learned and became acquainted with through sacrifice. This was not the last thing that was in the description of Jesus. There was also a sharp sickle in his hand. A man seated in God's presence. A man with a crown, an identity that is divine inspired. A man with a sharp instrument in his hand. Sometimes it's a sickle. Sometimes it's a sword. Because the harvest involves warfare and harvesting. The devil does not give up his children easily. It means that you may get to battle through sickness. You may get to battle through discouragement. You may find out that the kingdom can be very real and present in a very physical sense in your life. How did he get a sharp sickle in his hand? Turn with me to Mark. We're going to be in the fourth chapter. In the fourth chapter of Mark, pick up with me in the 24th verse. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And even more, when whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. I want you to think about this for a moment. I'm going to keep reading here in just a second. But no sickle starts off sharp. It starts off as a crude piece of metal that must be sharpened. No 
God-born, spirit-led, awesome, powerful Christian is born a completed product. It takes the molding of the Spirit. It takes the path of sacrifice. It takes being divinely led before you can be a useful instrument. When I was born again, I went immediately to go participate in the worldwide harvest. Within 24 hours of my salvation experience, I was arrested. Zeal without knowledge. I began teaching immediately. I had not been born again a week, and I already had crowds about this size crammed into a little apartment. But along the way, the king of the universe began to show me your sickle, your sword, not sharp. You must learn before you can go and teach. You must be molded into my image. And Eric Stevens, there is way too much of you in you for my liking. So here, 17 years later, I'm still in a process of learning self-sacrifice, sharpening the sickle that Christ, the hope of glory, might be formed in me. Where are you? <coughs> complete already or not even started or somewhere in the middle listen as he goes on in the parable he also said this is what the kingdom of God is like a man scatters seed on the ground get this the kingdom is like men who are planting not men who are sitting and soaking planting night and day whether he sleeps or gets up the seed sprouts and grows and he does not know how you are not responsible for the results of your ministry. You are responsible for obedience in your ministry. You are not responsible for the results. We go scatter seed. We go speak the word. God makes it grow. If you are making it grow, it is satanic and cursed. Just like the ground that you came out of. All by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. This is like Ezekiel's dry bones coming to life. There is first tendons and sinews and then muscle and then skin and then a human being before you. There is first a stalk and then a head, then a full kernel of wheat. The kingdom is not all at once here it is or there it is. It begins in a man's heart. Obedience is the beginning of it. The fruit of obedience is what your faith prompts you to do out of love for the king of Israel. And before long, your life grows into a tree that others are taking shade in. <coughs> Come on, saints. This is our call. This is the great harvest. As soon as the grain is ripe, He puts the sickle to it. Because the harvest has come. Some people are quick to look at the passage I'm preaching out of in Revelation 14 and say, Eric, this harvest is judgment. Brother Kelsey shared with me right before the service. Luke 18 is about judgment. A woman is praying and she's praying. And Jesus taught this parable so that people would pray and not give up. And he ends the parable by saying, Will, I find, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when He returns? Well, what was the subject of the parable? A 
woman was beseeching the judge, grant me justice. Friends, judgment is only a bad thing if you're on the wrong side of it. The harvest will always involve judgment. The cross is judgment. It lays a line down in the center of humanity and says, you're either condemned already or you have stepped into this and found life through the death of self. Hear me. Life comes through the death of self. This is how we can say he who loses his life finds it. It only comes one way. Self must die. Self-governance. Self-direction. You determining your path. You deciding what is good and bad. You making decisions has to die. If you want to participate in God's harvest. We're not blessed because we're Americans. There's only one group of people that are blessed. It should be called the obedient. Obedience brings blessing. Wealth is not blessing. Affluence, lack of persecution, not blessing. Acceptance, when all men speak well of you, not a blessing. You are blessed when you can stand in the presence of God. You are blessed when you know who you are in Christ. You are blessed when the sickle in your hand is not a dull meat cleaver or axe or tire iron, but it has been sharpened with the laser precision of the Spirit. I listened to a man yesterday speaking of ministry in a precarious situation. A man ministering to a woman. A woman with a very difficult, promiscuous past. And with laser-like, spirit-led precision, the Holy Ghost led him step by step to bring the woman into the harvest without compromising her or him. Where is this in ministry today? <coughs> I told him I, I admired it. There were two normal responses to that very situation. The pastor runs and hides because he cannot be trusted to overcome temptation. This is a huge area in the church. They go so far as to teach, don't ever even allow yourself in that situation. Well, Jesus couldn't have met with the woman at the well. He couldn't have met with Mary Magdalene. He could not have met with half of the women in His ministry. And the other response to that situation is the one that you see in the newspapers week after week after week. So we don't even need to go into that one. But the Holy Ghost will sharpen your sickle. So that in every situation, you know what is and is not appropriate because you are no longer judging by your eyes and ears. You are judging by what the Holy Ghost is showing you to do. And if you have thought this through very far, do you have the right to decide what is good in you? Oh, wouldn't you think that we would? The great folly of the fall was that man no longer trusted God to decide what was good and evil for him. He wanted to be self-governed. And the folly of the fall is even present in this room right now. When we decide what we want to do, we are saying we know better than God. Saints, if I pause here too long, you will be lower than the carpet fringe. How many decisions in the last year did you fight 
kick and scream against God. You're only where you're at now because he gave you no choice. Self-governance brings a curse. If we want to participate in the worldwide harvest, we need to be seated in God's presence. We need to have worn a crown of thorns so that he can bestow upon us a crown of golden divinity. We need to possess a sharp sickle in our hands. And very much like 2 Timothy 2.15 says, we study to show ourselves approved. I want you to hear how Paul said this many years before John wrote it in the book of Revelation. He said it in a different set of words, in a different way, and yet this is what the Bible is. The Bible is very much the same story being repeated with different actors in a different set over and over and over so that every tribe, every tongue, every nation will get the point. i got to confess, I'm not much on rap music. I, I just I haven't been since I was a, a young teenager. And then I was drawn to it because of sex and violence. So in the kingdom, when people have mentioned rap music, uh, my very first response is uh, to shy away. Last night, I heard rap music set to scripture, or scripture set to rap music. My spirit was moved. Moved. I'm not much on country music either. But if I start singing about Jesus and quit singing about beer and adultery, I might be moved towards it. The point being is that the Bible is a story much like different songs, new songs that only God Himself can teach you. And they're being played through every kind of humanity. Kelsey's song is different than Mike's song, is different than Abel's song. But it is all supposed to be glorifying God. What does your song look like? What does it look like when you're seated on the cloud? What does your sickle look like? What is your crown like? It's yours and no one else's. You don't go buy them at Walmart. You cannot get them from the seminary factory. It doesn't work. It has never worked. As many as great revivals has ever been in this nation and the nations of the world, you tell me, did they originate in the cemetery, seminaries? Did they? In fact, they were usually men that rejected the ordination of the religious leaders of their day because they examined them and didn't like them. When Charles Finney was forced to appear before presbyters, they said, you're preaching unauthorized sermons. You must submit your sermons to us for <coughs> approval or you must go to our seminary. He said, man, I have examined your lives. If you are the best product that the seminary has to offer, I find you woefully short of Christ and I reject your offer. What does your sickle look like? How led by the Spirit are you? How much of your day is spent with an open ear saying, Lord, show me. I really care. Or is your day, your Franklin planner, your little Mormon gift to mankind right there, the Franklin Covey planner, kind of the ultimate in self-governance. Does it have the list of your to-dos? How many of them can you say were spoken to you by God? This does not mean that the haphazard, unorganized court jester dancing through life is spirit-led either. But I'm asking you something. How much of your life is born of the Spirit of God? How much of your identity has come through the path of self-sacrifice and divine endowment? How sharp is your sickle? Do you know who you are and how God wants to use you? 
Listen to how Paul said this in Romans. Turn with me to Romans. You will be in the 12th chapter. I want you to know that the pastor that I met with the other day, Pastor Dale Hamilton, rarely preaches under an hour and 20 minutes. That made me feel very good. Hmm. Of course, he preaches to small crowds just like us. Apparently, there's only a remnant that really is hungry. Most would settle for a snack. Most would trade their sickle for something that comes out of a Cracker Jack box. Brag about the beauty of their church. Brag about the size of their church. Brag about the eloquence of their pastor. But never know what it is to truly ride on a cloud. Have a God-given crown or a sickle. Go to the same church the devil. <laughs> Faithful attender, too. Sometimes he's even preaching from the pulpit. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. How should your entire life be viewed? In view of God's mercy. Think about it, saints. Before we even get into the meat of this scripture. Well, this and this and this happened to me. Yeah, but are you alive? But you don't know about this struggle and that. Yeah, but are you here? Therefore, the theological joke is what is it there for? Man, if we didn't read even the rest of this verse, if you just learned to view your life through God's mercy, do you think it would change the way you viewed other people's lives? Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as the living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. If your body is a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God, doesn't that mean that you're seated on a white cloud, riding the presence of His Spirit? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice if it doesn't mean the death of your will and the acceptance of His at every turn? I urge you, brothers, I urge you, brothers, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Seat yourself in God's presence. This is what he goes on to say. This is your spiritual act of worship. Yes, we might even call it being led by the Spirit. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Is that not wearing the golden crown of God's identity that He's put in you? When you renew your mind, you're finding out who you are instead of who sin says you should be. How many of you, when you begin to worship, the first thought that comes to mind is the way that you fail God. And that thought tries to define you so that you never find out who you are in God. You were screwed up when He called you. Let's be honest. He's fixing you. Which would you rather dwell on? View your life? In view of God's mercy, the day of judgment is coming. Right now He is lavishing mercy and grace upon you. Which would you choose to focus on? I don't believe that God is looking at you in this room as a miserable failure. I think He's looking at you with all the potential of Jesus Himself. 
and he is urging you, learn to walk in my spirit. Learn to take my identity upon you. Learn to sharpen your sickle that you might be effective for me. It is an abundant life. I believe this is what the word of the spirit is saying this morning. But who is listening to the spirit this morning? You have attention deficit disorder. Is your imagination everything except submitted together? Are you so far from the covering of God's talit that you don't know what it is to dwell in His shadow? What do you think all of these open pulpit messages have been about? There is a harvest. It must be effective in the harvest. To be effective in the harvest, we have to be led by His Spirit. To be led by His Spirit, we have to be willing to walk the path of sacrifice so that we can see God's glory in everything. We have to sharpen our sickles to be used by Him. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Wear the golden crown. Then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will that sounds much like a sharp sickle to me. Riding on the cloud, knowing who you are in Him, teaches you what His will is in every situation, i.e. a sharp sickle. Do I speak up or do I shut up? Do I run over or do I run away? Do I speak a harsh word or a kind word? These are all the decisions that are made with a sharp sickle. Some, Peter says, are snatched from the fire. Some are gently persuaded. A sharp sickle. There is no formula for the way that you reap the harvest. There is no mechanical method. And yet our pastors and our churches immerse themselves in mechanical method after mechanical method. And if it worked for that church, then we'll adopt it here. <laughs> Nobody ever goes back and looks to see how many of these ridiculous fads has the church bought into over the last 20 years. The gospel is about teaching people total obedience to God. It's what the angel proclaimed in Revelation 14. Total obedience. Purchased men who are not defiled, who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. This is the Gospel. If you want to expound on it, the only way you learn any of those things is through the life, the work, the character, the authority of Yeshua. It must be stamped upon your very forehead, His character, His identity. And when His character and His identity is stamped on your forehead, the Father's is as well, because no man gets to the Father except through Him. The folly of the fall is that everyone thinks he is able to distinguish good from evil. We still think that we know better than God. We're not allowed to be governed by our perception of what right and wrong is. There is one measure for the governance of God in your life. You were or you were not obedient. Think about the great men of faith. Abraham, the father of the faithful. How right do you think it looked to go murder his son? What do you think his knowledge of what is good and evil was telling him? In fact, if you heard that story today, you wouldn't be surprised if it came from a Muslim, but you'd be pretty surprised if it came from a believer. Right? 
Abraham chose obedience over self-governance. He chose obedience over his opinion of what was right and wrong, and so he becomes the father of the faithful. He becomes one of the best examples of what it is like to return to a garden-like existence. So that we're called children of Abraham, and we learn to throw stuff off of the throne as well. The sin of Adam and Eve was choosing their government over God's government. I heard a preacher say he was going to punch Adam in the face when he got to heaven. I don't believe that preacher will ever make it to Sunday. He also got some people to burn down an abortion clinic. Does this sound like self-government or God's government? Does it sound like a man who has decided for himself what is right and wrong or a man that is hearing the voice of the Spirit? His church was called Redeeming Word of Life. self-government and what you have is a wolf wearing sheep's clothing. Turn with me to Luke 22. Okay. Hebrew says, it's the mature who through constant use have taught themselves to distinguish good from evil. How do the mature through constant use, I'm leaving out a word on purpose, constant use, train themselves to distinguish good from evil? What is the missing word? The word of God. Through constant use of the word of God, they have taught themselves to distinguish good from evil. What this means is when you have an opinion, when you have something, it better have come from your experience with Jesus riding on the cloud. It better have come from the identity that God has given you, the authority that is flowing through you. It better be from a sharp sickle based on the Word of God. You do not have the right to make judgments about your own life, much less anyone else's. Only the Spirit of God is fit to do this. How many decisions do you make every day without a singular thought about what God's will is regarding I want to tell you, I'm almost two decades in watching people follow the Lord. My observation is that the vast majority will not follow Him down a road that involves sacrifice of any kind. They will talk a good game. They will go to church and attend all the meetings. And when it becomes difficult, the Lord will have moved them to somewhere less difficult. That is my God's honest Observation, just objectively speaking, not only about the church at large, but the fired up, crazy storefront churches I've always been a part of. The vast majority do not follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They do what they like and they refuse whatever they dislike. Come on, saints, is that a sharp enough sickle for you? Do you do what you like and refuse what you dislike? Then who is really Lord of your life? Have you been so deceived that you think that sitting in church, singing songs, feeling warm, fuzzy feelings every now and then makes Jesus Lord? What makes Jesus Lord is the death of your self-government 
and the acceptance of God's government. That's what makes it more. Then no amount of failures can separate you from Him. Nothing can separate you from Him. You'd be like trying to separate your head from your body. He's in control. I'm in control of my feet even when they've fallen asleep and they're not doing what I want them to do. They still belong to me. I might have to shake them and wake them up, but they still belong to me. Go in Luke 22. In Luke 22, here comes verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What we see is Jesus in the throes of the most agonizing, difficult decision that any human being can make. The death of what He would like and the acceptance of what God would like. It caused such pressure to be upon Him that His sweat dropped as if it were drops of blood. Don't tell me that it's easy. Don't tell me that you have no problems with these things. All you're really telling me is that you don't understand what I'm talking about and you've never done it. Because anybody that has ever had to die to what they thought was right, let their character be assassinated. Watch their dreams get crushed. To do what they know God has said do, even though every bit of fruit around them speaks to the opposite knows exactly what this statement means. It means your death so that His life might prevail. This is what it means to be born again. Your death that His life might prevail. Jackie Pullinger, we put it on our website. She said one of the principal governing factors of the Gospel is that 100% of the time it brings death to the giver and life to the recipient. Where is this in the body though? How are you dying that someone else might get life? Where is the principle of self-sacrifice? Or do we only say, my crown now, my best now. Give it to me now. This is the language of a toddler. The language of the mature is, what would you desire of me today? You know you don't get the prize until you have finished the race. The language of a toddler says, give me what I want now! Like children throwing a fit before the Lord. He wants us to flow in His Spirit. And His Spirit will always take you from thorns to glory. From Sina to Moses. This story is repeated over and over in the Bible. From suffering to glory. <coughs> always the momentum of your life and the inspiration of your faith in Jesus and your acts of faith prompted by love, your faith expressing itself through love, the momentum will be like a race car creating a draft. Others will be so drawn to what they see as authentic Christianity that they just want to hang out with you for a little while. A man told me this last week, as long as I'm hanging around with radicals like you, I figure there's still hope. I said, you are deceived. Oh, he was hurt because he was paying me a compliment. He said, until you are a radical like me, there is no hope for you. He hasn't emailed me back yet. He will. 
there's a seed in him. And it is growing. And it is growing. And he's outgrowing the religious shackles that he's worn for years. And pretty soon, the old dry coffin will not contain the bones that are alive anymore. Be like a butterfly let free, like a calf leaping from the stall. I have no fear for his life because he's in the hands of the king of kings. know what this path is, you must walk it. You cannot preach it without walking it. There are plenty of people doing that. You cannot <coughs> preach about giving away everything while hoarding everything that you have. You cannot preach about care and concern for the poor while you drive the Rolls Royce to Ruth Chris after Ruth Chris. You cannot do it. You cannot preach about the Lordship of Jesus when He is not Lord of your life and every day. Oh, sure, men will do it, but they're liars when they do. Powerful weaklings, devoid of the glory of God. And so they have created for themselves a form of godliness that has no power in it. Saints, I'm not picking on churches. I'm picking on us. You don't realize how subtle this is. Every time we begin to... Have you let the words creep out of your mouth? Well, I know God wants this, but... There is no but in a statement that involves God's will. Well, I was going to pray for this but. I'm scared of what the Lord will do. If you're scared of what the Lord will do, you're not dead yet. If you're still calculating, if you're still risk assessing your every decision, those are not the actions of a dead man. Texas A&M used to take person from the crowd that allowed a walk-on from the student body every year to be on kickoff team. The reason they allowed this is he had no scholarship to protect. He had no athletic career in his future to guard. He had the reckless abandonment of self. He moved at the greatest speed possible that his body would compel him down the field and he flung himself at Amazing thing, a finely tuned, well-trained athlete that plays with <coughs> not nearly as effective as the fat body from the student section. They just wanted to be out there for one last play. <coughs> Where are you in this process? I'm a finely trained athlete, and I'm willing to consider every day my life. Good things can often be the product of evildoers. Our sermon is about, are you a co-laborer? Are you an evildoer? I have run out of time. So I will talk to you about these rather than read you these chapters. Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 21 gets me saved. Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does it the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, 22. But Lord, did we not? What are some of the things that they asked? Did we not? Yes, is that a good thing? Is that a good thing? Yes. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not heal the sick? Right? These are all good things. In fact, these are things that are not even found in the so-called church. 
These sound like the most Pentecostal, charismatic, fired up believers you know. If they're casting out demons, prophesying, and healing the sick, they're the kind of people you want to hang around, right? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. Worker of iniquity or evildoer. Why on earth? You can do a good thing, but it not be something that God sent you to do. And you know what you have done? You have wrapped a pig in a blanket. I don't mean to insult all of the uh, sausage and pancake fans. <laughs> what I mean is, you have wrapped satanic self-governance in religious clothing. You say, then why did God set that person free? Why did God heal that person? Why? Friends, read your history books. A.A. Allen was stone drunk and healed people. Did he heal people because he was in the perfect will of God? Or were they healed because God had mercy on them? How does someone prophesy and it not be the will of God? It was not His will that they prophesy it. But it was a prophecy that was His will. It was His will to heal this person. It was just not His will that that one do it. But maybe they were the only one that stepped up. Let me pick one that might be easier to see. Did you know that the Bible says in 1 Samuel that Saul was changed into a new person? Did you know that? It's, it's the singular best example in all of the Old Testament of a born-again life. It doesn't get any closer to the words born-again than say changed into a new person. The problem is a couple chapters later when the prophet has told him in 1 Samuel 15, I'm going to go kill all you guys. Don't you kill, destroy everything he's got. Samuel shows up and says, why weren't you obedient? He says, but I was obedient. I went in and whipped them all. He says, then what is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? Oh, I saved the best sacrifices for the Lord. Do you know that the kingdom of God was torn out of his hands over that? So why? He just wanted to sacrifice something. It's the same sacrifice that Abel brought. Because it's a sacrifice that was born out of disobedience and self-governance. Friends, you do not have the right to direct your lives anymore. You better not have chosen this church. You better not have chosen your spouse. You better not have chosen the place you live. They better have been chosen for you and you be walking in obedience. The people's choice. I think we might have a message coming called People's Court soon. The people's choice will always get you in trouble. Self-governance wrapped in religious clothing is still satanic. The best proof of that that I can think of is in Matthew 16, 23. You'll know this. I mean, if I'm lying, then you can turn there and correct me. A man looks at Jesus and says, Oh, no, Lord, never. They're not going to kill you. We wouldn't let that happen. Who on earth would want the Messiah to be killed? What does your sense of right and wrong tell you if you're standing in that situation? Tell me you're any different than me. Tell me that you would not, at least on the inside, have said, no, Lord, never. Please don't let anything happen to him. How many of you can even stand to be in a room with an animal that's killed? 
only meat you've ever seen wrapped neatly in cellophane in a store? Have you so insulated your life from death that the thought of a lamb, just a, just a lamb with its throat cut, would make you vomit? How do you think you would have reacted then when Jesus was talking about his death? Would self-governance rise up in you? Would you presume to know better than the Lord? Because Jesus looked right at a man that he loved desperately, that he was giving his life for, and said, get behind me, Satan. See, self-governance, wrapping itself in religious ideals, is a wolf in sheep's clothing. The king of the universe has one eternal gospel. It was in Revelation 14. It is total <coughs> obedience to the creator of all things. I want to read you a Watchman Nee quote or two. <coughs> Watchman Nee is one of those guys that has been feeding Christians for years. There's no biography in his books. There's no explanation of who he is in any of the books that I own that are by him. You know, there's no about the author section. There is no picture of him in a library. I guess they wouldn't do that with Christian books anymore. He <laughs> just is called Watchman. One of my favorite quotes that I found in his book. How can one be subject to authority if he does not pray or seek God's heart? What a fitting statement for the church. How much time are you spending in prayer seeking God's heart? You all pray at home, right? You all pray beside your bed. You pray with each other. I don't know how many people are in the room right now, maybe 60. But I know an hour before our service, there's not two that can pray. <coughs> you think maybe our prayer lives could grow a little bit? You think maybe that intercession could be the key to transformation in our church and in our city? Well, why don't people pray? Oh, it's the whole self-governance thing. I've got things to do. I got places to be. I don't want to. I just have a hard time sitting in one place. That I just am not that into prayer, you know. <clears throat> How can you have God's authority flow through you if you are not seeking His heart in every situation? So while I am, Eric, I'm just doing it somewhere else. Oh, I bet you were. <laughs> because everybody's more spiritual outside church than in it. Right? <laughs> That's the way it works, huh? It doesn't work that way. So am I safe in assuming that there's less than a handful, literally, people interceding before our service, that intercession's lacking in our homes? How do you ride on God's presence? How do you know who you are in Christ and have a sharp sickle in your hand? If you're not communicating with the king that is supposed to be in control of you. Here was the second quote. When we first begin to follow the Lord, we are full of activity, but quite short on obedience. Because our lives are full of doing what we like and refusing what we dislike. 
I could have just said that in the beginning and I could have saved you the entire message. Here's quote number three. This alone is work in obedience to God's will, that which originates with God. We are not to find work to do, rather we are to be sent to work by God. Let me ask you, how many things in your life can you positively say had their origin in the throne room of God? And it flowed down through his chain of authority to you. You know, when we say, I'm there, that actual teaching was in the place called there that God has asked you to be in and when he asked you to be there so that you would be provided for there in communion with him there in the place that he said, there. Are you really there? Or is it just something that we say when the scripture is called there? Arsenio Hall used to have a section of the show called Things That Make You Go. <laughs> Here comes 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. I will read it to you. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Antioch, and they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these, and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at Usually when a leader is speaking to you about submission to authority, what does he usually say? Come on now, let, let watch. I bet you'll get it from like this. We're talking about submission to authority. And I'm reading you quotes about submission to authority. What am I usually telling you? You submit to me. I would like you to think about this in a different way. If you don't already know that, you have a hard time with the Lordship of Jesus. If you don't already know, you should submit to those in authority over you. I think there's two things that could be taught about submission to authority. One is that, yes, you need to flow in authority with those that are above you. But maybe more importantly to the soakers out there, is authority needs to flow through you, delegated to others. If a body of water has no outlet, it is dead. Listen how Watchman Nee said this. Anyone who has met authority does not see the man, only the authority invested in the man. We do not obey man, but God's authority in the man. Do your mind immediately go to someone in authority over you? I don't see that man. I'm not supposed to see him. I'm only supposed to see what God's invested in him. Good. Praise God. I hope you got that part. <coughs> but how about when you were looking in the mirror at the man? Hmm? See, when God asks you to do something, maybe it's talk to a man on a street corner, do you begin to look at the man and all of the reasons that you can't do that? Do you begin to take a census of your army and find yourself short? Or do you only see the authority invested in this man? You need to decide, are you going to obey you, the man? Or are you going to obey authority? See, this is what it means to wear a crown of thorns so that you can get a golden crown. It means that you discount everything that's flesh, whether it says something good about you or bad about you. And you receive only that which God says about you. That's how you know what is God's authority and what is not. You better have a sharp sickle to be able to distinguish his voice from your voice. 
three more scriptures. Here comes Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm that nothing move you. Always give yourselves partially to the work of the Lord. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. It is almost as if you were taking your stand against what Peter calls a flood of dissipation. Let nothing move you. Stand firm. Give all you have. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your work for the Lord, your labor for the Lord, is not in vain. Come on, saints. Why are you willing to recklessly abandon all thoughts of self? Because this present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Mm -hmm. Next time the voice in you says, what about me? I'm <coughs> the dead man. I'll stick him with the sword of God. Colossians 1.29 is my second to last scripture. Tell me when you are there. Okay, four of you were there. Did I say 29? My goodness, I'm getting old and having difficulty reading. Perhaps we could start in 24 and finish in 29. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. Tell me, He didn't wear a crown of thorns so He could get a crown of glory. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you the Word of God in its partiality. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles as the Goyim, the nations, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. For Christ to be in you, you have to die. His life to be in you requires your death so that He can govern you. We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, this telos, this goal, I labor, struggling with all His energy, which so powerfully works in me. Saints, when your flesh has been crucified,